Welcome to Counterpoint Conversations, a special podcast series brought to you by Verizon as part of the Counterpoint Women in Government series. Counterpoint will build a picture of the participation of women in government and uncover how the diversity of views affects its outcomes. How does having more women in senior leadership positions actually change the way policy is developed? And does it fulfill its goal to achieve better quality outputs? This podcast series will comprise women from the private sector engaging with their government counterpoints to explore how their experiences differ and to determine how we can draw on the best practices from each area. Counterpoint Conversations will analyze the themes surrounding the role women play in government and the broader workforce and the structural and cultural factors that impact how they're supported during their career progression. From defense and intelligence to science and business, we'll speak with some of the women in our government and private sector ranks who are achieving incredible things. Get ready to be informed and engaged with CounterPoint Conversations by Verizon. Welcome to Turning the Language of Science into the Language of Business, part of the CounterPoint Conversation podcast series. We know more than ever today the role that science plays in building the 21st century, whether it's our health or whether it's creating the solutions that address our biggest problems and opportunities. Science is a critical element. However, we can only ever be really successful with these scientific endeavours if we could get them out of the lab and into the business landscape and into the lives of the people that science ultimately affects. This discussion will focus firstly on business as a counterpoint to science and the importance of business acumen to communicate its applications and bring it to life. Secondly, we're looking at the barriers encountered by women undertaking management and leadership activities in technical fields. I have with me to discuss Dharmika Mystery, who's the co-founder and former chief scientist of BCAL Diagnostics and currently the head of medtech and biotech for Cicada Innovations. Alistair Gordon is the CEO of HFL Leadership. And while he helps technical experts who work with large enterprises manage the straddle between the deeply technical and the business landscapes. Alistair also has a story about his professional career where he's seen the role of bringing very technical into the business world in the 90s. So we'll be able to look through that lens as well. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for the invite. having me. Dharmika, I'm really keen to understand anyone's journey that's gone from a real focus on the science to then into entrepreneurship and the commercialization of bringing the science to life into the world. Can you tell us a little bit about where you've come from and what that journey looked like? Yeah, so my undergrad was much like anybody else's out there in science, you know, Bachelor of Science, majored in microbiology, and I basically was looking for something after that, and I ended up finding a job in a small biotech firm back in 2008. And so it was, you know, not known as startup back then, but it was a small company, and I was working there as a lab technician and came up with an idea that ended up propelling me into the world of commercialization, basically. So taking a discovery that was very much scientific one with a very low N and, and more of a theoretical thing and trying to think about the impact that this could have in a real world setting. And I, I have to be honest, at the time, that eureka moment was there, but it was also, I didn't realize the impact that it could have and what I could do. And eventually it became a basis for a blood test for breast cancer detection, which when you say that out loud, it's a really compelling, wonderful, impactful and motivating thing to do. And we're talking about counterpoint today, counterpoints of the world. 
At what point did you have a scientist lens on? Did you say, oh, actually, there's ways to kind of broaden this out, find a market? It's a very different way of thinking about solving problems, isn't it? A hundred percent. So I think the thing for me is I actually had quite an identity crisis early on. In science, we're trained to be researchers and do things that progress that particular piece of science. We don't always zoom out and think about the impact that that could have. I was working for a biotech company, so I knew that, and what they were doing was x-raying hair to detect breast cancer using what we call a synchrotron. So very complex beast, but at the end of the day, they were trying to find a novel way to detect breast cancer. So I kind of was lucky enough to understand what the why was, but the how was what I ended up working on. And I guess as a scientist, I did not have any of the commercialization skills. I was absolutely classically trained at doing things the old school way. And I knew very early on that I would have to transition into industry. And I was a little bit terrified because it would mean no publications. I was 22 when this all started. And that would be a real cutoff on my scientific track record. I was scared of not being a real scientist. I was not sure if business people would see me as somebody you know, ready to take on those business skills and challenges. And sure enough, I learned by being on the job, what my weaknesses were, what I didn't know and and what I wanted to know or what I could learn on the way, basically. You touched on something that I've heard over the years and Alistair, I'd love to bring you in here, but the idea of, you know, expertship as a scientist and that being defined by publications and Alistair, your thoughts on that, exactly that sort of quandary of finding yourself in wanting to pursue things, but being holden to proof points that might not be that important in the scheme of things. Yeah, and so all this sort of science is about accuracy and exactness and data-driven and evidence and testing hypotheses aggressively, and particularly testing other people's hypotheses aggressively and, and then publishing things and, and so on. And the commercialization piece that Adamic is talking about is uncertainty, ambiguous, you know, lots of different opportunities. I love the way, Dharmaku, you described it as when you were a scientist, not zooming out. Such a beautiful description. I want to steal it straight away because we deal with a lot of experts. We're a leadership company, but we deal with a lot of experts. It's actually our fastest growing area, this expertship piece you were mentioning. And the biggest challenge for experts to go to the highest level is that ability to zoom out and then zoom back into the science. You know, so, you know, Dominic is suggesting there's some technology that was developed that was was a solution, then looking for where was its application. And that's very often the case for experts, I think, in organisations. So that ability to be technically brilliant and be able to zoom out and understand where that technology could be deployed or that knowledge could be deployed is a killer skill. And I think it has a lot to do with some of the STEM topics that we're talking about later on, which is you know, I'd, I'd really encourage experts, particularly female experts at the earliest stage to do the zoom out that Dominic has done, because that's suddenly where everybody can see the value you can add. And you're not just a technical person looking for the next paper. May I add a point there? So the thing that I think is the missing skills gap, which we all kind of talk about, but don't actually do anything about sometimes is communication. And I think that's how you get from that technical skill to being that zoomer outer, if for a lack of a better term, because you need people to understand what is so exciting about what you're doing. And I think if you can't nail that as technical people, it just gets lost into the abyss and you cannot bring people on the journey. And I think that's a fundamental missing piece is that they're two different worlds, academia and commercialization or industry or whatever you want to refer to it as. And the empathy and language and everything is really different. And 
when I was younger, that identity crisis was such a problem. But now I look at it and I'm like, I'm able to navigate both worlds and it's a really wonderful thing. So I think that's something everyone should get to do or have. I get the sense as well there's a little bit of a cringe factor about anything when you're talking pure sciences and applied sciences and the commercial. I remember having a conversation with folk from universities in Israel and they dramatically changed the direction of the way that they look at the kind of commercial piece of research. And they said there was a shift in time in sort of Israel's history where they suddenly wanted to look outward at solving the problems for the world. That was how success was defined. Whereas I think culturally, we still want to hold on to a lot of traditional practices when it comes to science. You would see that through cicada, I guess. Yeah, I think so. And I think people love being an expert. It's a wonderful thing. And you get really passionate about it, but you can't get everybody else to be excited about it when they don't even understand it, right? And you want them to relate. So that relevance to different groups, you never know who it could be relevant to, but it's just the art of communication. And as you can see, nobody probably really cared about viruses that much. And all of a sudden, the whole world cares about viruses and how we protect ourselves from them and prevent them because it's become a relevant, relatable topic. And I think that's the key to anything we do in STEM is making it relevant. Alistair, I'm going to bring in here, sorry, you were a publisher and a very kind of influential publisher at a time when people suddenly realized they needed computers. So it's the same thing and very technical stuff where all of a sudden you're taking this huge change that's going on in, you know, the technology industry and reaching the masses. What was it like back then? And that communication piece is obviously legendary. Yeah, well, it was critical. So we launched a, I mean, Australia's a small market, but we launched an IT magazine into a market that had 32 IT magazines at the time. Uh, but they were all very product orientated and technically orientated. And, and most of the market really at that stage of the game was beginning to understand that computers might have an impact in business and they could be transformative. So what we decided to do is to take the 20% of people like Dharmika who were both technical and literate from a business sense and we focused on what had got them there. The magazine was called MIS, but it was basically for what we now call CIOs or CTOs. So we didn't talk about technology at all. We talked about one of the things that Dharmika was talking about, communication, but the other one was context. So how does an IT department in a large organization actually contribute to the business executing their strategy? You know, how can it add value to customers? How can it win new customers? You know, how can it retain customers? All that type of stuff. So we focused on the 10 or 15% of people like Domica who had made the transition of being able to be in both worlds and comfortable in both worlds. And most of our readers were the 60% of people who weren't in that category who wanted to be like that. And we didn't get read very often by the 20% who were head in the sand, techno people who didn't want to connect. And we just did silly little things that you'd recognize, Corey, like IT magazine that never had a picture in the editorial part of it of a computer anywhere. We always took photographs of the executives in a suit at the boardroom table as if they were as important as the CFO or the CEO. But nowadays, CIOs are known to be as important as those people strategically. But they weren't at the time. They were very often reporting to the CFO or worse, reporting to the financial controller. You know, oh, my God. So, you know, it was that, that sort of scenario. And we got them talking about how they deployed technology in a business, not which Oracle database they, they chose and technically why. 
and we refused to quote any IT vendors in the magazine, which you might remember, Corey, at the time was somewhat dramatic because most of the rest of the editorial by, of the other magazines was supplied by the vendors, you know. So I didn't get taken out for lunch very often by the vendors in the first six or seven months. Lots of comms teams running around with their hair on fire. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, the PR people hated it, you know. But the good news was the readers liked it, so that was the key thing. So here's a question. Australia is renowned for its excellent research, but also equally as well known for its inability to commercialise it in the same way that you would see in other pockets of excellence around the world. We're talking about the heyday of, you know, MIS and say, I'm going to say the 90s. So you've got a lovely rear view of all of those things that you're talking about translating from technical into, you know, broader business. What do you see? What were the things, I mean, you mentioned photos and those kinds of messages, but other kind of key structural fundamental things that might be useful for anyone looking at how we drag our research excellence into the business world? Yeah, it's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, I, I'm working with a, a client, and I'm very happy to mention the George Institute, who do a lot of medical research. And the reason they've become a very significant global research organisation is that they did exactly what we were talking about earlier on, which is they focused on what are the big world problems that need to be solved, and then they really try and understand those problems, and then they bring back and say, what science is needed in order to solve that problem. So they start with deployment rather than, you know, developing the technology and then trying to find a place for it. And, they, you know, they've had a big impact. I think Australia likes to think it's very um, gung-ho and what have you, but most of its institutions like banks, um, investors, high net worth individuals are remarkably conservative. You know, we're thinking about raising some capital for one of the projects that we have going on and I would get a valuation at least double and maybe three times as much in California as I would in New South Wales. And the money was easier to find. The sort of support that I know Dharmaka offers startups is everywhere in California. There's lots of opportunities. So I think we've missed the boat in terms of building the infrastructure and it's been this sort of conservatism. Remember that the vast majority of capital in Australia goes into building houses or digging stuff up and sending it to China. That's fundamentally the economy. And I think the number one problem with this economy is that we have a tax that benefits people investing in property rather than in new ideas. And that just destroys the entrepreneurial base of our psyche. We buy a house and hope that it'll double in value in seven years, and that's how we're going to make our money. And there's nothing creative about that. And, of course, it massively favours those who already have capital and disadvantages those that don't. I think you've raised a point that I've heard a few times. Even when you talk about like precincts or you look at pockets around the world, they're often led by individual people that have really kind of galvanised. And um, you know, at the moment, I think there's a handful in Australia from a like a software perspective that have really kind of gone become a lightning rod for what is possible. Now, those organisations and those people who are kind of shifting the conversation around risk and, you know, but I've also heard that it's the layer of people underneath them that don't necessarily have the experience when it comes to actually bringing some of this bold thinking to actual life. And you need the depth of it. You need the experience of people that can be led by a maverick, but also feel comfortable to take risks to see out those projects. How do we change it at that mid-operational level? Well, I think if you're in California and you've, you know, and this is probably an area that Dharmaka is more qualified to talk about directly, but if you're in California and you've run three startups and they've all failed, in California, you're perceived as a good person to run a startup for. Whereas here, you'd be pilloried in the press 
and considered a failure for even, you know, trying or whatever. The psyche is is really quite different. You're right about lightning rods and, and what have you. I do think that the other thing that Australia would be really well served in doing is doing what New Zealand have done, which is that any startup in New Zealand, because New Zealand's so small, there's no point in starting a startup that addresses the population of New Zealand. I mean, what's the point? You know, there isn't any. So their whole sector has been supporting ideas that can be created in New Zealand but are global in impact. Zero is a very good example of this, by the way. And I think Australians forget that we are 3% of the world economy. You know, really, other than digging up iron ore at the end, and I'm, I'm not, you know, deriding digging up iron ore. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that pays for a lot of schools and things like that. But, but the reality of the situation is if you're an entrepreneur in Australia and you're thinking about becoming market leader in Australia, then your focus is completely wrong. But, I mean, I, I think, Dominica, this is more your space than mine. Dominica, do you see that, like, the companies that you're working with, you know, Cicada is very well-known globally. It's got remarkable kind of success. Do you see that everyone, or for the large part, companies that you're working with are born global? I think we get to look at companies and work with companies that are in the deep tech bracket, right? And deep tech means they're solving something really big. It's derived from a STEM piece of work, and it's going to take a long time to get to market. But when it solves a problem, it's going to solve it well. And I think when you do that, it's naturally a very global picture that you're trying to solve a problem for. Granted that we see people, though, not just in our building who are residents doing amazing things and doing global things, but we also see people at the earliest stages who are supporting from the get-go. So many people that come through our workshops and programs and events are very much nutting out their idea on the back of a napkin or still working through it in a research setting and trying to understand why it's important and what it means. And through a lot of what we do when we talk about that, they need to understand the correlation between getting funded is always about the market opportunity. And Australia won't be enough of a market opportunity if you're just focusing on that, right? And in many cases, some things, you know, different jurisdictions want different things. Something you're developing here is wonderful, but the actual market for it might actually be overseas, right? And that's where you're going to solve the problem for more people. And I think the George Institute, as you said, Alistair, who you're working with, theirs is about you know, developing countries and, and that's their focus. So a lot of those companies come in with that global perspective, but we have to teach it. We have to remind people to, again, I say it again, zoom out because if you don't, you don't know, A, what you're working on and why, and then secondly, what the reach is for that amazing technology if, or if it even is valid to be something that could go to market. We were keen to sort of change tax a little bit here. Part of the Counterpoint series is looking at the role of women in business, government, and in you know, research and academia. There's some you know, well-documented data around women in research, as an example, who get to a certain point, and then the leadership representation seems to drop off. Now, there's obviously lots of reasons for that. I'm kind of interested, Dharmika, in your view about how does that potentially change where we direct our research to? Like if you don't have, you know, the diversity of people who are making decisions about where research time and energy and resources go, does it, it changes the way that we, the problems that we solve. Would that be fair? So women in leadership roles, sort of in, mm-hmm. in research particularly, once you have people who are in the decision making about where those resources go, does it change the way those projects come to life? Like you're talking about something, we're talking about breast cancer, which is, you know, obviously very, it's a female focused on the large mm-hmm. part, but, you know, having people of diversity making decisions about where resources go changes the profile about where our attention goes, where our money goes, where our skills go. 
Yeah, 100%. So I think that's absolutely imperative to any decision-making. We should have diversity and inclusion around the table. And I think it's in from a research lens, if you think about it, research is often quite independent in terms of your contribution and how much you're putting in and achieving. It's very much about your outputs and people tend to work on things that interest us and what's exciting to us. So it does become a bit subjective and it's it can also be quite isolating if you don't have other people that are in that same space and interested. But that's where we also see tranches of funding going to the same old thing. And I think for creativity, for really shaking things up, it's a classic saying, if you do things the same way, you're not going to see innovate. We see great innovation, but we want to see even more, I guess, problems being solved that relate to everybody. And I think it's it's interesting when I was developing a blood test for breast cancer, I'd sat in rooms with people that were all male and just didn't grasp the problem as much as women. They understood it was a problem, right? That detecting breast cancer is a problem, but mammography exists. Like, why is a blood test any better? And it's kind of like, well, have you had your breast squash between two metal plates? Like, do you actually get it? Go home and ask your wife or your daughter or somebody who's done this to just really understand why this is a problem. Yes, we've got a solution, but it's not the ideal solution. And I think that the experiences we all bring to the table, the perspectives we all bring from different walks of life, it's, you know, gender, age, backgrounds, ethnicity, the whole lot, it's going to shape so many different things because there are problems we're not aware of that other people have. So I think super important to have that. Corey, you'd argue that what Doug is just saying, Australia should be superbly placed to do that. We have one of the mm. most diverse population you know our favorite song is that we come from all the lands around the world but take a look at some of the larger institutions and who runs them and there's none of that diversity is represented at all and and if there is any gender diversity represented unfortunately in the areas that i work which is large corporates that diversity is not diversity of thought it's not diversity of perspective it might be diversity of gender But the men have chosen women who act and think like them to be on those boards. And so you don't get any of the variety and creativity and of perspective that Dharmika is talking about at all. And that's a real challenge. What is the role, and Dharmika, I'm interested in your views here, the role of men as part of the solution to getting better participation, better diversity of thought, that we're not just trying to find women who behave and think in the same way that men do. How do we include men on this journey? I think one of the things we should be doing is is doing what Dharmika mentioned earlier on, which is stopping talking about diversity as simply a gender thing or a a numbers game. It's about having a truly representative group of mindsets, ethnicities, sexual orientations, you name it, whatever that diversity is, in a room making decisions about the way this company should go or how it should serve its customers or how it should look after its staff. Until you get that diversity of thought and experience and perspective in large numbers, we're never going to break through that. And my worry is that if you leave it up to men to self-legislate, they're not going to do it. They patently have proved over the last 40 years they can't do it. And how long do we want to wait? My daughters don't want to wait any longer at all. Dharmika, I'm going to come to you in a sec. I just wanted to just touch on something. The kickoff to the series was an in-conversation with Annabelle Crabb and a a bunch of other fantastic guests, including Lucy Turnbull. And um, she said something that really struck me, that if you're looking at the role of diversity or diversity in organisations, don't just look for the one or two women on the board or on the executive team. You need to look at the mid-level because that's where you get 
enough people that you can identify with and they become the leaders of the future. They start seeing things through different eyes. That is the measure of an organization that's on track to be truly inclusive and diverse in its, its approach. I mean, I'm keen for your thoughts just as a scientist in the area that you're in, all the things that Alistair said, the role of men, how we build diversity and inclusivity in its most practical ways. Yeah, I would absolutely echo that because, you know, it's not just succession planning. You're actually building the team that you want to bring up with you. And it is all about opportunity at the end of the day. And it it can be very hard to be constantly vigilant of your own biases and fears. I get that. But I've always been a firm believer that storytelling is the way to break the stereotype. I've always just been quite open about who I am, where I've come from. It wasn't easy sometimes, but I think that's the way people understand a bit more about me and what matters to me and why I might be different or what, you know, gets me out of bed in the morning and what doesn't, those sorts of things. And that's simply done by interacting with different people. And I say this to all sorts of researchers that I meet along the way as well. I think it's the same sort of thing with research and industry and women and men and all those sorts of things is you've got to network in circles that are more diverse as well to put yourself out there, as well as bring those people into those sorts of events. And that's the hardest part. Networking brings opportunity. And that's where a lot of people are limited, especially if you don't have some of the privileges that other people have, or you don't know a lot of the people that other people know. You know, I came here with an Indian born in England, raised in Australia. My parents don't have a tertiary education. There was nothing. I've built my networks on my own. And I'm very proud of that because it put me out of my comfort zone. But these are the things that allow me to then tell people or educate them on what is it that I can bring to the table if, and, you know, get them to hear what's important to me. And I think it's not always easy. I will definitely say that. Sometimes, you know, people might think it's too much effort and you want to be taken seriously and you want to be a leader. But if people don't believe in you or they keep expecting you to fail, it kind of can turn into a really vicious cycle and you just want to get off that hamster wheel and and it just feels like it's futile. But if we don't break that cycle, then we're not going to be seeing women or anybody that different coming up through the ranks. And if we don't see them coming up through the ranks, then we don't build a visible case for why other people should try to get there as well because we just can't see it as something that's achievable. And I think that's the hardest part is to keep fighting to build that future that matters to everybody, not just a, a subset of people. And when it comes to men, I'm not, um, you know, I've actually been really fortunate. I've had a lot of male mentors that have been just as supportive as female mentors. And I've been very fortunate with that. I think it's because I'm not even sure what it's because of. It's just because People were there to push me when I didn't have that confidence. As we say, women don't always have that confidence. I needed someone to kind of go, yeah, you know, have you thought about giving it a go? Because you might actually be really good at it. And I was just simple things, PhD. I never really thought I was going to do one, you know, and my mentor said to me, hey, I reckon you should um, have a go at that. And I was thinking, oh, well, look, you know, I don't don't think it's for me. <laughs> it's like, maybe you shouldn't, you know, and, and there I was taking each step because somebody was guiding me and pushing me. So everybody has a role to play. I think it's absolutely important that we recognise that. That's a perfect example right there of what we in our business see every day when we're dealing with growth. I spent a week on a program with experts last week, so 20 experts in the medical field, and I would say that two-thirds of the participants were female And I would say that nearly 90% of those females were introverted rather than extroverted because they were, you know, people like radiologists and physicists and people like this. They have been told on a regular basis by a whole swathe of men that they've come into contact with that they're not good enough and that, that they literally have had the confidence beaten out of them. And it requires people to say to them, well, you know, you can step up, you can add more value. Exactly the sort of mentoring that Dharmaku is just mentioning there. 
And, uh, you know, anyone who's read Susan Cain's book, Quiet, and if you're an expert and you're an introvert, I highly recommend you read that book immediately. Like, stop everything, read that book. And she talks about a lot of data. And one of that piece of data is that, you know, if you're a female and you see an ad on Seek or Indeed or what have you, and you can do seven or eight of the things on the list, then you might think about applying if you're a female. That's what the data suggests. If it's nine, you will apply, but you'll still be nervous that you're not good enough. Whereas if you're a man, if there's one thing that looks vaguely like on the list you can do, you apply. And this is real data. That's not about DNA. It's not about how smart women are or how smart men are. It's about long-term cultural nurture. And that's really what we're trying to break down. I have to say that I agreed to come on because of, you know, I want to represent these these people that I see on these workshops. I've done quite a lot of coaching of senior females in large corporations as well. And (laughs) the amusing thing is, and they say to me, look, I'm just not getting on with the rest of the executive team, you know, or, you know, I just can't seem to fit in or what have you. And there's this in-group piece where the guys talk about the football and, you know, whatever. And it's actually quite excluding, you know, potentially. But the main reason I've seen that the, the male senior executives are not really engaging effectively with the women is they're scared to death of their capability. And I'd say that, let's say, 50 senior females that I've coached, over the last 10 years, I'd say that was the case in 48 of them. And remember, when, you, when you're when you an executive coach, you get to see the senior female with their boss, which very often is a CEO or a divisional CEO, and you can see it play out in front of you. You can see it, you know, and you you say in the coaching session, you do realise that they are absolutely scared beepness of you. <laughs> you do realise that. No, no, absolutely. You're, you're quicker and you're faster and you work harder and you do all this sort of stuff and they have been nice to all their mates on the way up and they're mediocre and you're amazing and they don't like it that's the truth of the matter and there it is it's out now i've said it i probably lose loads of clients <laughs> we, we're gonna run out of time but Danica, i just want your thoughts on what alistair's just said yeah, I think it's important to rec and I completely agree with some of like a lot of what Elster said, but I've had to always bring it back to layers, right? So women, people, humans, we're just so many different things, right? And I say, oh yeah, I've got an identity crisis, but you know, as I said, first it's an ethnic one, an Indian born in another country. I don't have a homeland. I'm an ethnic working in a world which is biotech, so a lot of white seniors who I had nothing in common with. I'm a scientist who moved into industry at a young age when startups weren't cool. So I was terrified of that whole scientist business thing and being pigeonholed. I was a woman of colour leading pioneer research and I wanted to be taken seriously for my hard work and capability and be respected by everyone. I think it's just a lot of layers that end up making people or women or whoever it is that's trying to get into the senior positions that the confidence is eaten up by a whole bunch of little things. And so addressing one, addressing two, you've really got to get to understand the people and and what it is that's holding them back. It wasn't easy. Did people doubt me? Yes. Did people pigeonhole me? All the bloody time. Then I was a mother, so I didn't want to drop the ball. I wanted to work as hard as I could to keep, you know, working at the same pace so I wasn't contributing any less. So I feel like, you know, people are always proving themselves every step of the way. And that breathing space to think about how to stop and pause and be like, can I do the next thing? And and am I good enough? Comes from those mentors and people that are watching from the outside. So recognizing that because 
The unconscious bias that you're fighting can be more than one bias. You're trying to build, maintain and sustain a career. And it's quite exhausting and relentless. I actually think that it just keeps going. We're going to have to leave it there, but I think it's almost the perfect place because Dharmika, the way you're talking, it's like, there's a lot of things that can empty your tank. And then (laughs) what is it that will fill your tank? And I have no doubt that there will be people listening that you've just helped fill their tank a little bit about the fact that, you know, your experience is very real and very relatable and really enviable that you've really carved out such a, you know, a fascinating path. So hopefully that becomes part of filling up someone's tank. So thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. And Alistair, fantastic perspectives. And I've been looking forward to having a chat with you because great, interesting history and just a wonderful role in the in the business community. So thanks to both of you. Thanks so much. Thank you. And lovely to chat with both of you. Yeah, me too. We hope you enjoyed this special CounterPoint Conversations podcast by Verizon. For more, keep tuning in to innovationoz.com forward slash podcasts or visit verizon.com.